My name is Jeff, and it is my pleasure and my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here at the Hallows. Um, we're going to continue our journey through the book of Luke today. I think they're trying to adjust the sound up there a little bit. Sounds kind of hot. There we go. That's getting better. Thank you, guys. All right, we're going to continue our journey today through the book of Luke in this uh, really uh, famous passage, um, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. So let's, uh, let's dive right in. Several years ago uh, in Great Britain, a group of researchers, they went door to door asking people their views about God. And depending on whether a person said they did believe in God or they did not believe in God or if they uh, did not know exactly what they believed, a series of follow-up questions were then asked of these people. Now, for those, who, those people who said they believed in God, some of the follow-up questions went like this. Do you believe in a God who can perform miracles? Do you believe that God can intervene in human history? Do you believe that God can intervene and influence the things that are going on in your own life right now? Now, when the article finally published, its title was very telling. The title of the article came from the response of, of one man who was interviewed because the response of, of this man was seen by the authors as being uh, sort of the most representative of all the people who were interviewed. You see, this man, when asked these questions about God, answered them by saying, sure, I believe in God, of course I do, but I don't really believe in a God like that. He said, no, for me, I believe in just, just the ordinary God. And so the title of the article when it was finally published was just that, The Ordinary God. That was the title because that was the sort of the prevailing viewpoint that came through again and again uh, from all the people who were interviewed. And so what about you? As you sit here and as we begin our time together this morning, what type of God do you believe in? And what do you believe about Him? And, and why? Do you believe in a God who is actively at work in this world right now? Do you believe in a God who is actively at work in your own heart and in your own life right now in a meaningful and, and tangible way? Or, like the people in this article, when it comes right down to it, practically speaking, do you and I believe more in just, of a, just an ordinary type of, of God? As we explore this passage today, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, a young teenage girl named Mary is going to have her, her entire life turned upside down in a very troubling way. And as she does, Mary is going to be confronted with the question of what type of God she believes her God to be. This story today is going to remind Mary, and it's going, I think, to remind us that the God of the Bible, he is, he is no ordinary God. He is extraordinary. In fact, we're going to see that with this God, with, with the God of the Bible, with our God, nothing, nothing is impossible. And so let's read the passage, and then let's take some time to talk about it. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. 
Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be? since I have not had sexual relations with a man. The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. And so, the way I'd like to explore this passage today is first to to look at the message that's being delivered to Mary by this messenger, this angel named Gabriel, and it's quite a message. It's It's a pretty alarming message. And then I'd like to look at Mary's response to the message she receives and her response to this encounter that she has. And so first, the message, what is it? It's an unbelievable message, impossible really. The message to Mary from this angel sent by God seems to be that this person named Jesus would be coming. Jesus is coming, the angel says. Mary is also told that this Jesus, he would be born a baby, and that she, she would be his mother. And this, of course, tells us that Jesus would be human, and so Jesus will be coming, and Jesus will be human. But the message gets far more interesting as we go here. The message also seems to be that this person who was coming, who would be named Jesus, he would be no ordinary person. Jesus would be human, but Jesus would somehow be more than human too. Mary is told that her baby would be conceived supernaturally by the power of God for the plans and purposes of God. She's also told that Jesus will live forever, and He will be called the Son of God, the Most High. He will will not only live forever, she's told He will rule and reign forever on the throne of David over the house of Jacob, she is told. Now, these are Old Testament references that uh, tell us even more about this message that was being announced to Mary. And the message being announced to Mary that day seems to be this, that Jesus would be coming, and Jesus would be human, but Jesus would, would also be God. God entering into human history as a, as a baby named Jesus. We're talking about the infinite God becoming an infant. We're talking about the most high becoming the most low. And that's quite a message. As Pastor Andrew said a couple of weeks ago about the Bible and about the gospel, you can't really make this stuff up. And if this is true, if this message is true, this means there was a time when God, He made Himself vulnerable and dependent He needed to be taken care of. He needed to be fed. 
He needed to be held. He needed, he needed to be loved. And apparently Mary would be the one to do those things for Jesus, for God. Jesus made himself like us in every respect, vulnerable, approachable, relatable, even killable. And he was. Christianity is the only belief system, the only religious system that says God has ever or would ever do something as scandalous as that. But that's the message. You can't, you can't make this stuff up. It's utterly unique. But let's be clear about something here. This message from God to Mary on that day, it was not coming entirely out of the blue for God's people. You see, God had always said he would be sending someone to make, to make everything right that had gone so terribly wrong in, in the human heart and in the human condition because of sin. In fact, much of the storyline of the Old Testament is about God's people stumbling and faltering again and again and, and God patiently and faithfully loving them and leading them in spite of them. But all along the way, God, through his prophets, gave his people many hints and many whispers about the future and about a Savior who he would be sending to restore everything that we had broken. God made that clear that someone would be coming, but what was, what was not exactly clear was when or how that would happen or who that Savior might be or how that Savior might actually save all the way back in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God alluded to someone who would be coming, who would uh, crush the head of the serpent that had deceived Adam and Eve and enticed them to sin against God. Later, God, through his prophet Micah in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, told his people that someone would be coming who would be, who would be born in Bethlehem and who would rule over God's people and get this, who would have his origins from everlasting, it says. From the days of eternity, he would come, one translation says. God, through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, announced to his people that a child would be born for them, a son would be given to them, and he would be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. God, through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, told his people that he would, he would give them a sign uh, when this, that this Savior had finally come. And what would that sign be? Get this, the sign would be the birth of a baby boy to a virgin girl. And that baby, that person, it says in Isaiah chapter 7, would be called Emmanuel, which, which means God with us. And those are just a few. There are others too. But collectively, you have to, you have to marvel, don't you? I know I do, at, at seeing this moment in this passage today as the beginning of the fulfillment of these remarkable things foretold by the prophets of God centuries ahead of time. Which brings us back to Luke chapter 1. Here we are right here is where, where it all begins. As God begins lifting the veil and revealing a very mysterious plan to save us from ourselves and from our sin through a, through a Savior named Jesus who would be born a baby boy to a teenage girl named Mary. And this all sounds quite remarkable, impossible really. 
And at least for me, what makes this all the more remarkable is when you consider who Jesus was and what Jesus was up to leading up to this point. Before he is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, before he begins growing in the belly of Mary as a human a baby, what was Jesus doing? Now, what I'm about to say are some things that we know about Jesus that Mary didn't really know, but nevertheless, what was Jesus doing before this? Jesus was being God before this in eternal communion with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. The Apostle John says it this way in John chapter 1. He says, he says in the beginning, Jesus was there. He says, Jesus was with God. He says, Jesus was God. Then in verse 3, John says that Jesus created everything. He says, apart from Jesus, not one thing was created that has been created. The Apostle Paul puts it another way. Similarly, though, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, he says, all things... Not some things, all things, he says, were created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. He says, and Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things, not some things, but all things hold together. This tells us that Jesus not only created everything, but he is holding everything together too, uh, right now, continuously and, and actively Think about something with me for a moment. As we sit here this morning where we find ourselves 93 million miles away from our sun in a galaxy called the Milky Way. And just to give you an idea of how big this galaxy of ours is, if we reduce that distance, that if we reduce 93 million miles to the thickness of a piece of paper, do you know how much paper it would take to reach the nearest star in our galaxy? It would take a stack of paper 70 feet high, each piece of paper representing 93 million miles. It would take a stack of paper 310 miles high to span the diameter of our Milky Way, each piece of paper representing 93 million miles. That's pretty tough to get your mind around, isn't it? And that's in our galaxy alone. A hundred years ago, astronomers knew of only one galaxy. That's our galaxy. Now it's estimated there are hundreds of billions of galaxies like ours. And so that's a big universe. That's a very big creation. And modern science does uh, agree that at some point in the very distant past, there was a single point at which and in which all of it began Science has absolutely no idea how that happened, and if they tell you they do, they're exercising far more faith, in my opinion, than it takes to believe in the story of Jesus. There was nothing, and then there was something. There was nothing, and then the universe as we know it exploded into existence. Science agrees on this. The Bible agrees on this, too. Science says that somehow just happened, that, that we somehow just happened. The Bible says these things didn't just happen. The Bible says that Jesus happened. Jesus did that, does that, and is doing that right now. And this is the very same Jesus who this angel Gabriel is telling Mary would be coming into the world in order to save the world by becoming a human baby to whom she was going to give birth. 
And so this is the message. Can you believe this? Do you believe this? If this is true, if you believe this, uh, this means that Jesus is not somebody that uh, you and I can simply respect as a, a good man or admire as a great teacher up there with all the other greats. If all this is true, if you believe this, Jesus is not some sort of accessory or some kind of add-on to your life. No, he, he made you, he created you, and he owns you, and he has some things he wants to ask of you in your life, and so have you been listening? Jesus does not intend to be a part of your life. He intends and deserves to be the point and the purpose of your life, and so is Jesus that to you? How has he been inviting you into his story to take a step of faith with him in your life? Are you listening? Are you responding? Friends, these are exactly the kinds of questions we're going to find Mary wrestling through as she encounters the truth about Jesus and as she thinks through what it might mean for her life and for her future if she responds to this message. And so let's talk about how Mary does respond. We talked about the message. Let's talk about the response. Three things Uh, We're going to see in Mary's response here to Jesus, first sobriety, then sincerity, and then surrender. First sobriety. This angel shows up and says in verse 28, greetings favored woman, the Lord is with you. And that sounds pretty good, right? That's a pretty good start. But then look at verse 29, it says, but she, but Mary was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Now, I don't know how many different kinds of greetings angels typically use, but Mary Mary wasn't uh, so sure about this one, at least not at first. And it sounds a bit comical, really, that she's wondering what kind of greeting this might be. But that's not the best translation, really. That word wondering, it's an interesting word in the Greek. More literally, that word is a, a sort of accounting word. It means to take an audit, to to add things up, to weigh things out, to to reckon. In other words, Mary began to think. She began to process. How do I account for what is going on here? Is this real? Is this a dream? Am Am I hallucinating? Many people believe the only, many people think the only way you can believe in God and the supernatural is to kind of check your brain at the door and to turn your brain off, but that's not what Mary does at all here, is it? And it's not what you and I do either. But if you look carefully, Mary doesn't sit there and say, wow, look at that, an angel, this is wonderful. No, she's deeply troubled. That word is also translated as disturbed or confused or agitated. And so Mary is saying, what is going on? She's thinking things through. She's adding things up. Mary is responding in this moment probably the very same way that you and I would respond if an angel showed up and interrupted our day like that. And so there's a certain sobriety about Mary as she considers this encounter and this message about Jesus. She's disturbed, but she's thinking. She's weighing the evidence, trying to make sense of what is happening and and what she's hearing. And it's not entirely clear why exactly Mary was so deeply troubled. We're not really given those details, but we can certainly, certainly understand why that may have been, can't we? Maybe Mary was troubled simply because it's not a common thing for people to have supernatural encounters with angels, either then or now. Maybe Mary was troubled because she thought of her God as more of a, an ordinary type of God, 
not one who would show up and, and shake up her life in this way. We really don't know what type of relationship Mary even had with God. Maybe God had been pretty quiet in her life for a long time. After all, he had been very quiet with his people for a very long time leading up to this point in salvation history. And so maybe Mary was troubled by the realization that her God actually sees her and knows her and wants to use her and is communicating with her. Maybe Mary was troubled by the language the angel used, calling her a favored woman twice. In verses 28 and 30, he says, you have found favor with God. And so maybe she was aware that again and again in the Old Testament, when uh, this language is used to greet somebody, it often meant their life was about to get very hard based based on what God was going to be asking of them. And so we're not told exactly why she was deeply troubled, just that she was, and we're told she was actively processing what was going on, that she was taking it in, she was thinking it through, and she was adding it up. And so there's a certain sobriety about Mary as she considers this encounter and this message about Jesus, but then you also see a certain uh, sincerity in Mary too. In verse 34, Mary begins asking questions. She says, how can this be? How can this be? This does not seem possible. I have not, I have not been with a man in that way. Mary has questions and doubts, and she begins expressing them. How can this be? How me? Why me? Why, why here? Look around. You see where we're at, right? You see, Nazareth is not once mentioned in the Old Testament. It's an obscure and insignificant little town far from Jerusalem. And so at least at that time, it was about as far as you could get from the epicenter of God's activity uh, with his people. And this is why a guy named Nathaniel in John chapter 1, verse 46, after learning that Jesus had come from Nazareth, he said, are you kidding me? Nothing good could come out of that place. And Mary, being in that place and from that place, surely saw herself and her life as obscure and insignificant too. She probably didn't have high hopes or expectations for her life. She figured she would settle down with Joseph and raise a family and and live a simple life like everyone else there. And yet this is the place and this is the person to whom God sends this angel to bring this message that would not only change Mary's life forever, it would change the course of, of human history forever too. And this is a very beautiful reminder for us, I think. Let's not forget how this is happening. Mary was not looking or asking for any of this. She did not see this coming. She had done nothing special at all, as far as we know, that would merit God's favor in her life. And yet what what you see here is God's grace and God's initiative reaching into the most unlikely places, pursuing the most unlikely of people, inviting this nobody named Mary to become a, a somebody in the story of Jesus. And so as Mary is taking all this in and thinking all this through, she understandably has questions, she has doubts, she says, how can this be? And what we see here is that these questions and doubts that Mary had about Jesus, we see that it's okay that she has them and that she expresses them. And and this is in spite of what happened last week with Zechariah, if you remember. You may remember last week, Zechariah had 
questions and he had doubts too, but things went very different for him. This very same angel, Gabriel, showed up to Zechariah to tell Zechariah that he and his wife Elizabeth would have a son and they would name his, their son John. And that John, who you and I know as John the Baptist, would go on to prepare God's people for the coming of Jesus. This is what the, the angel said to Zechariah. And when Zechariah received this mes- message, he had questions, he had doubts, and he, he too expressed those doubts. Luke chapter 1, verse 18, it says, He said to the angel, How can I know this for sure? I'm a very old man, and my wife is very old too. He asks, How can I know this? It's almost the identical question that Mary asked in this passage today. But how does the angel respond to Zechariah's question? Not very nicely is the answer. The angel strikes him mute. He says, just for that, Zechariah, you will not speak again until your son is born because you did not believe me, the angel said. And now here we are, the same angel shows up and talks to Mary, and just like Zechariah, Mary has questions, and and she has doubts. She's looking for answers. She says, how can this be? And what does the angel do? The same angel, he blesses her. He encourages her. He says to Mary in verse 37, in response to her questions and doubts, he he reassures her. He says, he says, nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. He says, so it's okay. You can, you can trust him, Mary. And so was this angel Gabriel having a bad day when he met up with Zechariah? Was he grumpy that day and today he's in a better mood? I don't think that's it. We're not really told that. So then why these two different responses by the same angel to what appears to be the very same question? I think we have to assume here that what the Bible is telling us is that not all doubts are considered equal when it comes to our faith and our, and our posture toward God. Here in the city of Seattle, we are a highly educated city, we are a highly secular city, and you will come across a lot of people here who say that spiritual doubt and doubting God and doubting the supernatural is absolutely necessary and good. All smart people doubt everything, right? It's what makes them smart, they think. On the other hand, in other places, in certain traditional religious circles, you have people who say there's no real place for questions or doubts when it comes to the Christian faith. In these sorts of circles, you would never be encouraged to actually think critically about the person and the story of Jesus at all. Don't ask hard questions. Don't doubt. Just believe. And of course, these days, you've got a lot of people, too, in a lot of different places who say that uh, you can doubt and question anything and everything. I don't care as long as you don't doubt or question me and, and my truth that I have constructed for my life. That's out of bounds. Don't question me. But what you have here, it seems, is that according to the Bible, some types of doubts are welcomed and other types of doubts are not. Perhaps Zechariah should have known better than to question and doubt God in that moment. After all, he was a pretty high-ranking priest at the time, and so maybe, maybe that factored into this. But what we may also be seeing here is that perhaps some questions may be coming from an open mind while other questions are coming from a a closed mind. Perhaps there's a type of doubt that comes from an open mind that is open to the truth and sincerely wants the truth. And what we're going to see with Mary here is that when she becomes convinced of the truth she is sincerely seeking, she's willing to hand over 
the keys to her life. On the other hand, maybe there are some kinds of questions and doubts that aren't really looking for the truth because they may think they actually already know the truth or because they may not actually want the truth. And in that case, questions and doubts about God and about the gospel could be used by a person as a way of keeping their mind closed and and staying in control of their lives. Mary had questions and she engaged them. She's willing to admit her doubts and her weaknesses and she, she wanted answers. She sincerely wanted the truth. And she got the answers she was looking for, didn't she? The angel answers her question, how can this be, by declaring to her that nothing will be impossible with God. And with that, in the very next verse, the final verse of this passage, we see Mary uh, turning a corner here and responding to what she's been hearing and what she's been told about Jesus. And the way that we see her responding is is with surrender and with submission. Verse 38, Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said. May it happen to me as you have said, Mary says. And do you know Mary is actually the first person who hears the name of Jesus and actually hears the gospel presented to her in a form not not unlike what you and I have today? And she's the first person in a way to respond to Jesus and these, these truths about him. So in this moment, I think, you, I think you could say that Mary becomes the first Christian. But what makes this all the more compelling is how she becomes the first Christian, knowing full well what this was going to mean for her life and for, for her future. She knows what's going to happen. She knows what's going to go down. She's been calculating the cost and thinking things through. In fact, uh, that's probably part of what was so troubling for her. Think about this. Mary lives in a small town, right? People had calendars then. They They were not stupid. They could add things up. They could figure things out. She knows they'll be watching. They'll be whispering. Let's see. Married this date. Baby that date. Wait, what? She knew the whole town was going to believe that either she had sex with her fiancé, Joseph, before they were married, or she had sex with somebody other than Joseph, again, before they were married. Both were very serious matters back then. It was very different than it is today. Today, many people would just say, it's not a big deal, Mary. You just, you just do you. Mary knew she would be ostracized by her family and her friends. She knew she would be ostracized by her community She also knew she would probably lose Joseph. Joseph would probably divorce her over this, and justifiably so, if what seemed to be true was actually true. Now, Mary didn't know this then, but we know this now. God, in his grace, would send an angel to visit Joseph, too, and to reassure him, to join Mary in in taking the step of faith with her and and with him. And Mary surely also knew that this son of hers, this Jesus, as she raised him, as he became a young boy and and, and a young man, he would be seen throughout his life by all of those around him in his community as being illegitimate. There would always be questions about who his father really was. Jesus would surely be the butt of jokes. He would probably be bullied and ridiculed. And so when Mary says, may it be as you have said, 
This is a remarkable moment of surrender and submission because what she is really saying is, may it be that, that I am disgraced, that we are disgraced throughout our lives. This is Mary, after taking this message in and thinking this message through, saying to God, if this is your will for me in the story of Jesus, I accept. Not my will, but yours, Lord. May it be as you have said. Mary is taking a step of faith in, a, in the direction of a very difficult future, a very unknown and uncertain future. And let's fast forward to modern times for a moment. What does a young girl do these days when an unexpected or inconvenient pregnancy takes place and where the road ahead seems just too hard to bear? The British Christian writer Malcolm Muggeridge once said that in modern times with family planning clinics so easily available to correct unexpected mistakes for us, he says this, it is extremely improbable that Jesus would have been permitted to be born at all. Mary's pregnancy in difficult circumstances and with her father unknown would have been an obvious case for an abortion. Her talk of having conceived as a result of the intervention of the Holy Spirit would have pointed to the need for psychiatric treatment and made the case for terminating her pregnancy even stronger. Thus, he says, our generation needing a Savior more perhaps than any that has ever existed would likely have been too humane to even allow one like Jesus to be born, he says. Mary knows the future will be hard, but she surrenders and submits her life to what God was asking of her. May it be as you have said, Lord. And this moment of surrender for Mary does not really seem like a very joyous moment, does it? It sounds almost like Mary is conceding, saying, I see what I need to do, Lord, and I'm ready. But there will be joy. The joy will be coming. That's why the angel tells Mary to go see her cousin Elizabeth in verse 36. Over the next few weeks, as this story continues, Mary is going to travel and visit her cousin Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is going to encourage Mary and speak into her newfound faith. She's going to affirm Mary's part in God's great plan as she is inspired by the Holy Spirit to say certain words to her. And what we're going to see at that point, not right away, but it comes, we'll see Mary in a very beautiful uh, passage bursting into song and bursting into worship, being overcome and overwhelmed by joy as a, as a result of her surrendering, surrendering her life to the story of Jesus. The joy didn't come immediately, but it came, and it will always come eventually when you respond to this message about Jesus. Sometimes it comes quickly. Sometimes it comes later. Sometimes it comes much later, but the joy, the joy is coming. And that's important for you and I to understand. We must be careful with a false gospel that says, here's how you uh, receive Jesus. And if you receive Jesus, you're going to have a, a wonderful and trouble-free and joyful life right from the get-go. Sometimes that is how it works, but most often that's not how it works. But the joy will come. Eventually the joy will come for anyone and everyone who surrenders to the story 
of Jesus, and that's a promise you can bank on. Speaking of joy, do you know why Jesus came in the first place? The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus did it all. Jesus endured the cross. He died for our sin because of the joy that was set out before him. He was looking forward to a certain joy that would be coming. And what was that joy? That joy was you. That joy was me. That joy was Mary. That joy was the salvation of those who surrender themselves and their lives to this story. You and I and our salvation bring joy to Jesus. And let us not forget that everything we've been talking about with Mary here, Mary did all of these things. She responded in all of these remarkable ways to Jesus before having any idea at all what Jesus was going to do for her. She didn't know that her son Jesus would go on to live a perfect life that no other human had ever lived. She didn't know that her son Jesus was going to perform miracles, that he was going to heal the sick, he was going to open the eyes of the blind, he was going to set spiritual captives free. She didn't know there would come a time when Jesus would be deeply troubled too. That there would come a time that Jesus would be in the Garden of Gethsemane contemplating the cross, adding it all up, thinking it all through, and struggling with very sincere questions and doubts about this cup he was being asked to drink, this suffering he was about to endure. And what did he do? He went to the Father sincerely and said, Father, how can this be? Is there another way? But then what does he do next? He submits and he surrenders. He says, if there is not another way, Father, not my will, but your will be done. May it be, as, may it be done as you have said, Father. And so that's the pattern Jesus followed. It's the pattern Mary followed. And it's a pattern uh, for you and I to follow as we live out our lives by faith. As we approach our lives as followers of Jesus, would we do so with sobriety? always thinking things through, adding things up? Would we do so with sincerity, taking our sincere questions and doubts and struggles to God? And I hope we would do so as well in submission to whatever it is that God may be asking of us in our lives, however hard that may seem. May it be as you say, Lord, not my will, but yours. And as we do that, friends, as you and I are willing to take our hands off the wheel and let God be God, he will do incredible and even impossible things in us and through us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we can be open and honest with you as we journey through this life. Thank you, Lord, for this story, for the story of Jesus, how it all begins here. And thank you for the ways that encourages us and reminds us that you are you are no ordinary God. Thank you for the ways it reminds us that you are with us and you are for us. God, God, would you make us a people who follow you faithfully wherever that may lead. Make us a people who approach our Christian lives with sobriety, with sincerity, and ultimately with surrender. Surrender to your plans and your purposes. And God, would we experience great joy as a result. May it be as you have said, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.